Thank you for listening to this Miller Time Media Podcast. This interview took place during our Miller Time Live radio program. For information on the program, you can visit our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio. You can also find us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms by searching Miller Time Media. If you do not find us on your favorite podcast platform, not to fear, just send us an email and we'll get it done for you, Radio at outlook.com. Thank you and enjoy. Hi there, everyone. It's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters on Radio Today, 1485 AM, and also going out on DSTV channel 869. And we are heard around the world because today anybody can hear anything and everything, which is quite scary, as well as being absolutely fantastic when it comes to things like interviewing authors and my book show which oh i just absolutely love so on the line from cape town i have mark winkler who has just written published his latest book due south of copenhagen and it's published by prh which is penguin random house and i'll tell you how much it costs and everything later so Welcome to Reading Matters, Mark Winkler. Hi, Sue. And Mark, um, this this book of yours has the most fascinating cover, which I suspect, you know, it, it comes from various aspects of the book. But I'm just going to start with saying that, um, first of all, you're an author of of terrific note. You have written books which really, really make anyone who reads them think deeply, as does due south of Copenhagen. So, you know, you look at the book, you see the title and you think, hmm, so we're going to Europe, we're going to Denmark. And the only way we really do that in the book is possibly through two of them. Well, the one character isn't a main character, but he's there in the background through every page of the book. Won't you? Uh, it's it's Max, um, Maximilian. Uh, they call him Fritz. And then Carl. How do you pronounce Carl's surname, Mark? Um, Carl Udengard. It's a Danish surname. Yes. And then Max is, you know, we come into the... Uh, story of Max and Carl, who, as I say, almost like a ghost, haunts this entire book. Um, but m- please, Mark, just say, Sue, that's absolute rubbish. How could you say that if I uh, say something which you don't agree with? Um, and and so they're both about, what, 12, 13, round about that age, and they meet each other at school in this Lofelt town in Pumalanga, but it's not. It's back in the uh, 1980s, so, you know, it wasn't in Pumalanga then. Mark, you, um, I'll get into the construction of the book later on. You paint the picture of how the book opens because you will do it more faithfully than I do. The book itself was prompted by a rather um, not family friendly photograph of, of myself doing. Uh, <laughs> A routing to a large gun yes. <laughs> sent to me by by a, a fellow marine out of the blue he got hold of me a couple of years ago and he sent me this photograph that I totally forgotten about 
and it just prompted you know there's almost like a, like an odor like an aroma it prompted a lot of memories of um, stuff that I'd kind of forgotten about you know I'm, I'm now in my mid 50s so to go back to the age of 18 and uh, not a very pleasant time in my life was something that I didn't really dwell on but this really evoked like a lot of stuff around not just military service but around society and how things function you know in the really the height of apartheid yes and um how specifically privileged white society carried on while rome was burning you know? yes absolutely so that really yeah that prompted it and then i created the character of max who is kind of my age i suppose and he spends a day the last day in his uh, little country newspaper where he's been editor and owner for a while packing up his office and over the course of the day he remembers a whole lot of reasonably random things that come together as a you know kind of dovetail at the end to come together in the, in the culmination of the story yes yes and and another um aspect of of your book is the small town um, I suppose it wasn't a village, but a small town where everybody knew everybody and everybody else's business. And yet, in spite of that, there is the most extraordinary thing that happens fairly early on in the book. And it's a mystery, which it seems that it's only Fritz, who's sometimes called Fritz Fritz by his mocking schoolmates, making out that he's a Nazi, you know, um, when, yeah, he, when yeah. he couldn't have been less of one if he had tried. Um, and there's this, this, this dark secret that he, and I don't worry, there's no ways I'm going to give it away, Mark, that emerges right at the end of the book. Um, but you do wonder what, uh, throughout the book, about the mystery, because it's clear there is a mystery. Now, um, Fritz comes across Carl in in his school, and and Carl is a very he's a very unusual uh, guy. He rocks up. Fritz's father owns a um, garage in town. The town doesn't belong to it's not a real town is it uh, mark well no it's not it's a fictionalized version of of this little town that i grew up near um in in the low field but the you know the geography is totally different the characters are totally different yes so it is a fictionalized version of that you know in the late 70s early 80s yes yes and and what happens is that they meet up at school and Fritz, as usual, is being beaten up by this real tough, well, I was going to use a naughty word there, but anyway, <laughs> bully who's beating him up. And yeah. Fritz has kind of got used to being beaten up. And the next thing is that Carl, who he, you know, he hardly even knows because this guy kind of pops up in their classroom um, almost overnight, um, as it were, um, beats the bully with a hockey stick, and and then the next thing he he rocks up at Fritz's father's um, garage on his quite flashy motorbike. He comes from a very rich, a wealthy family who have settled just on the outskirts of this little town on a citrus farm, and he says, "Follow me," and then. You know, you, your powers of description, Mark Winkler. Um, am I saying your name right, by the way? Yeah, yes. Oh, okay. Um, 
are extraordinary because you describe <laughs> Fritz getting on his beat-up old bike that doesn't have any gears and he follows Carl and they arrive on the farm and they're near a dam and there's a tree and the next thing, Carl is banging his head against this tree. He's He... he punches it like it's a punch bag in a gym so hard that his knuckles are bleeding, his hands um, hang down by his side when he's finished beating himself up. And then he says to Fritz, now, go ahead, do the same. And Fritz looks at him in absolute astonishment and says, what do you mean? And, okay, you take it from there, because this is actually quite a pivotal scene, I feel, in the book. Yeah, I think what it what it does is it what I hope it does is signal to the reader that Carl is a is a very very disturbed um, young kid without giving away the reasons that it kind of deciphered more or less towards the end, but it's never really resolved. Um, he has a he has a he doesn't like bullies. He has an obsession of trying to protect people, and then um, this manifests in really strange ways. And we find out later on that he actually self-harms as well, you know, Max finds this art. Yes. Uh, so, you know, Carl ended up being a much more present character than I thought he would be, you know, I thought he'd be this incidental little guy woven into the backstory of, of, of Max. Yes. Um, but he ended up being a much, much more powerful character than I'd imagine, even though he has very little airtime in the book, actually. He doesn't have a lot of, a lot of page space dedicated to him. But what yes. he does, I think, is... is quite powerful because every scene that, that Carl appears in, he's doing something really off the wall and, you know, really unexpected because he is quite so disturbed by his own circumstances, no matter how much money the family's got, you know? Yes, yes. And into the story early on are woven um, a couple of uh, girls, uh, possible love interests, um, Lucinda is one. She's the the pivotal one, and um, Max, who's called Fritz. So it's it's yeah. What's his full name again? I've I've forgotten it. It's it's Maximilian Fritz. So his schoolmates call him Fritz, and yes. his friends call him Max. Yes, and and um, whew, what should we call him to be consistent? Okay, we'll call him we'll call him Max, and. Um, what also emerges early on in the book is the is 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 the distance between Max and his and his parents because they you know every so often he will say something happened but but his parents weren't interested or it's it's fascinating it's it's kind of, it's not sinister, but it's sad, isn't it? There, in the background, Mark. What what were you getting at there that Max wasn't having, he was an only child, as as was, is Carl, um, but he's, there's no warmth, there's not, Carl's mother, um, she's, she's Danish, and uh, she's absolutely beautiful, long-legged, gorgeous, warm at one stage when Carl gets very very angry she simply sweeps him up in her arms and hugs him close to her and soothes him and and so there's that warmth and the complete opposite of what um, Max goes through with his parents who are very hands-off 
Yeah, I think it goes to really, more than anything, Max is a character. He's, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's a victim, but um, he is kind of very compliant. He's a bit of a weather vane and, you know, he adapts according to the circumstance he finds himself in. You know, that, that goes to when he joins the army and his relationship with Lucinda. He's, he's not proactive. He doesn't take the bull by the horns, you know. He just, yes. like, waits for stuff to happen to him. And... I, I suppose the, the the family thing, they are completely dysfunctional. I mean, his, his, his mother, who starts off reasonably normal, eats herself into a state of obesity, you know, over, over the period of a few years. Yes. And um, his father really completely loses the the the, the plus. You know, once, once his garage starts not functioning as it should and the competition opens up across town. Yes. And he also kind of loses the plot. And... Um, Julie, his mother, has this, she's, I don't know if you remember back in the day, there was a song by someone called Marion Faithful called The Ballad, Ballad of Lucy Jordan. Oh, do you know? Yeah. It's one of my favourite. Oh, I'm going to ask yeah. my and producer to play it. Never, she would never drive through Paris with the warm wind in her, in her hair. In her hair. Along those lines. Yes. And Julie's very much like that. So she's trying to teach herself French. She has the, this kind of desire, this urge to get out of this little town and go and live life. You know, on a grand scale, but it's just never, never going to happen. So she compensates with with food. Yes. And Vili, who's very, very narrow, very insular little guy, works on his, you know, very good mechanic, German trained because he's from Germany. Um, yes. <clears throat> very insular and and obsessed with his own things until he kind of loses the thing. Yes. And Max is just not neglected, but he's kind of left to his own devices. Yes. And there is. There is another character that's of NPC called the idiot who kind of wafts in and out. Yes. Who is obviously a mentally challenged individual. And I've kind of left it open-ended whether this is Max's brother or is it just a kid who hangs around the garage, you know, because he doesn't know what else to do with himself. He doesn't have a race. All he does, all he knows is that the idiot has a gender, you know? Yes. And the idiot almost becomes a... That's what I'm looking for. Like an, an... allegory of how white people generally were living then, you know, totally inward-looking and completely unaware of what is going on around them. Yes. And in a way, he's a kind of mirror of Max in that sense. Yes. You know, where, where Max is, because of how he was brought up in, in the society he grew up in, he was um, just left politically naive, naive with regard to relationships, friendships, all that sort of thing, yeah? Yes. Yes, and to that extent, he's he's an enigmatic um, character. Well, certainly for me, and um, and then there's also somebody uh, who pays. Well, not central, but the uncle Sarul. He's a policeman, and he features um, in the book, especially uh, towards the end. We meet him when he's a kind of, <laughs> I don't know if in a small town you have an on-the-beat cop, but if you do, he is. Yeah, he's, he's the, the, the kind of, you know, maybe not in rank, but in, in presence and ability, he's, he's the main man. You know? Yes. So he's, he gets involved early on with the, the early on Open Guard event and, you know, sees through that case. And then what without giving this away, he's the one who deciphers what wasn't actually any longer a mystery, but is suddenly a mystery again at the end. Yes. 
you know, on his deathbed, recollecting those days, and rather astonished that that Max had no idea what had actually what had actually transpired. Yes, yes. So he's a device ready to carry that thread of the story. Yes. But also to to represent that kind of again slightly allegorically to represent the power that the police had in those years. You know, yes. like what they what they did, whether legal or moral or not. Yes. Was fine. Right. Yes. And that, that was pretty much how it was. And I suppose, uh, Mark Winkler, it's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters on Radio Today, 1485 AM, and I'm chatting to noted author who's been shortlisted several times for the Barry Ronger Fiction Prize, the Sunday Times one. It's, it's a prize everybody who writes fiction wants to win. And I'm talking um, to Mark Winkler about his book, Due South of Copenhagen. It is the most enticing title because you wonder (laughs) where the hell this title comes from until you're a fair way into the book. And (laughs) that's also part of the mystery is the title. Um, What Do you know when you talk about the power of the police and the apartheid era and... I suppose, um, well, uh, let me see if I can start off on the... I mean, that power was demonstrated most powerfully um, by um, uh, a policeman making a wrong assumption and finding about a murder and two totally innocent black people being sent to be hanged in Pretoria. Yeah, so, I mean, I know, you know, it's, it's what I've tried to do in this book is, is you know, take a micro view of what are really macro circumstances back then. Yes. You know, where, where, where things were driven by the apartheid government and the hold that they had not over, not only over the legislation, but also kind of through religion and morals and fear over, over the white population, you know? Yes. And getting people to toe the line like that. Yes. And, um, you know, Sorrell and also uh, Carl's father over represent this collaboration of family, community, church, state, military, pseudo-military like the, you know, the cadets, the kids used to have to do. Yes. All kind of points towards the, the propping up of of the nationalist government back then. Absolutely. And what... And each, yes, sorry, carry each, on. Sorry, each, each, you know, each character... Um, represent some kind of role that led to how we consciously or unconsciously supported that state. You know, you get the the kind of Nazi denialists who said, oh, but we didn't know what was going on. Yes. Yeah, and in a way, white South Africans were, were as complicit, even if they weren't active, actively involved in supporting the Nationalist Party or, you know, thought that they were fine because they voted PSP or whatever it was back then. Yes, yes. And... And when we came out of it all, we all said, oh, we had no idea. <laughs> yes. And so Max, you know, Max uh, Fritz, uh, uh, a.k.a. Fritz, he kind of embodies that, you know, that kind of, until, yeah. of course, he goes into this brutal um, army, uh, Marines, down in Simonstown. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, that was my reading of it, that he em- em- embodies that. Mark, what... Also, you know, well, for me, the joy of this um, book, which sounds as if it's all about brutality, which it isn't, um, is 
how beautifully you have captured um, those times, the 1980s, you know, the end of the 70s into the 80s, as um, as Max grows up, gets into the army, then goes back to this little um, town in what is now Mpumalanga and becomes, you know, the editor of the local newspaper. Um, it is a beautifully uh, written book. It's exquisite. Do you know that when you write about... I was asking my husband last night about that incredibly brutal uh, training when you go in for the first three months. I mean, there have been books and plays and songs. And in fact, right at the beginning, this one by Bright Blue, Weeping, is one of my most favorite songs of ever. And so, Mark, although I don't think I've ever met you, you have just... You have just mentioned two of my most, most favorite songs, Weeping um, and Marianne, <clears throat> a faithful song, the uh, ballad of Lucy Jordan. And anyway, in in that um, initial uh, training, which is brutal beyond uh, belief, there is one hilarious point when one of the characters um, who's alongside Max in the thing. He is being beaten up and sat on, and oh, goodness, it, it's like torture, actually. And, and after a while, he says to this guy who's in charge of all this grotesque treatment, but my husband tells me that's what you have to go through if you're, you know, in the armed forces. He says to this guy who's beating him up, you think, I mean, at the time, it's also sadomasochistic almost and he says after he's been brutally beaten and how was it for you you know which is what happens at the end of when you've been making love how was it for you and he says to this guy who's been beating him up how was it for you and this guy the wind is taken out of his sails for a while he doesn't actually know what to reply yeah I, th I think you know that's the kind of dark humor like that was was one way of coping with with what was really really an unpleasant experience you know it was it was it was brutal it was dehumanizing you were stripped of anything that made you what you thought was you you know especially at the age of 17 or 18 when yes. most of us went in there uh and also the you know what you tend to forget is that that guy in charge the the leading seaman the killer he would have he would have been himself no more than 19 or 20, you know? Yes. Given a lot of power, almost unrestricted power, um, in the in the punishments meted out, in the way he treated people who were only a year or two younger than him. And in very many cases, he would have also been a, a, a conscript, you know? Yes, yes. And how that guy had been so turned around and twisted to be able to meet out that punishment. And then... That scene is almost revisited in a way later on when they're on the border. Yes. And the guy in charge hands over his power to one of the troops to see what will happen. And the troop starts drilling this one guy until he almost drops dead. Yes. If you remember that section. I do. So it's almost like that, that, that unfettered nature of power, especially in, in inexperienced hands, how dangerous that can be. Yes. Know? Yes, absolutely. But to, but to come back to that scene, the the... the Humor was was a large part of the way that the only way you could deal with that. You know, there was no other outlet just to just really to look at, try and find some kind of really dark way to laugh about the situation you found yourself in. 
Yes, yes. And what um, uh, uh, going up to the border, um, you know, up there on the uh, Zambezi where Botswana, well, I sh no, now I'll use the current language, Botswana, Zambia, South Africa, etc., the Caprivi Strip, Katima Malilo, etc., etc., Rundu. Um, the, it's almost like a scene, scenes out of Apocalypse Now. The steaming jungly, they're crocodiles waiting. They throw hand grenades into the water before they have a swim to make sure no crocodiles waiting for them. Your powers of description there again uh, are, are, are just extraordinary. It This would make a very powerful movie because of the um, difference between that small town, that in inverted commas, that innocence, the this this sort of secret family, then all the dynamics playing in and out there. I want to take you, Mark, to some of your other books you wrote, and I have not read it, and I have no idea what it's a, what it's about. It's um, an exceptionally simple theory of absolutely everything. And you wrote that back in 2013. Of course, you know, it makes one think of Bill Bryson and, and, and his books. Um, and then you wrote Wasted, and then The Safest Place You Know, and My Name is Nathan Lucius. It's, it's extraordinary the range of the novels you've written. What, are you a full-time novelist, author now? Um, uh, I kind of am and I'm not. But ever since I le left my, my advertising life in October last year, I thought I would be spending most of my time writing, but it's amazing how busy you can be when you're not working for a living. So I haven't really got around to doing much since then. Um, and, yeah, to get back to those books, I mean, uh, when I was very lucky to have my first book published because it ended up in a slush pile. I'm talking about an exceptionally simple theory of absolutely everything. Yes. Give it its full title. That was, you know, I submitted it to the usual thing. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never done a credit writing course or anything like that or... You know, and I managed to finally get to the end of what I thought was a a novel. And the, I got the obligatory rejection slips from all inside me until a lady called Melika de Yaka from um, Nationale actually was fishing through the slush pile in a moment of boredom and found this and phoned me and said, look, this has got merit, but you need a lot of work. So I said, tell me what to do. And she told me what to do. And it ended up actually being published, which was really my, my, my break into the, you know, to, to, to being found on bookshelves everywhere. Yes. And then once, once I've finished that book, it's, it's very much a kind of Bishop's Court White Angst novel. Yes. And I promised myself that I would never write the same book again. So from then on, I've always looked for completely different storylines, completely different um, themes to touch on. And most importantly, different voices. And I don't know if that's played in my favour because I don't have a particular voice like, you know, very successful authors, I suppose, like Wilbur Smith, you know, straight away it's Wilbur Smith or, you know, a Peter Carey or yes. Ian McKeown, you know, more on the literary end of the scale. Yes. They have a very distinctive voice, very distinctive style. Yes. And my challenge has always been to fish around 
until I find it, it's almost like a musical key, I suppose. Find the right right note, the right key to write that particular novel in. So they, each one is very different from the one before. And that's quite an interesting challenge. I don't know if it's done any favours commercially, but that really wasn't the why I started doing this. Yes, and... And I think that's why, mm-hmm. if you go back to my previous books here on Flora and compare it to this one, Do South Copenhagen, you'll find a lot of people have said to me anyway that it's almost as if two completely different authors have written them. Totally, because I read Theo and Flora, and and I'm, I was astounded to read uh, Copenhagen, you know, after after Theo and Flora. Yeah, I suppose uh, Copenhagen is so lucky. There was um, I wrote a book called Wasted, and um, that was published overseas. As my name is Nathan Lucius. And that's probably in style is and voice is probably closest to the salt. Yes. But the others are all very, very different, yeah. My goodness. Mark, and you know, we've run out of time now. I wanted you were asked a question about um, you know, tips for writing and and, and well, anyway, I've run out of time for that now. But my goodness, you are very clear about what you shouldn't do and should do as a writer. I am going to go back and find your other books now and read them. I can't wait to read um, an exceptionally simple theory of absolutely everything, <laughs> simply because I think the title's so extraordinary. Um, Mark, what are you? Are you going to write another book? Are you going to continue with novels? You've written in a way because you were a marine, um, you know, in your military service. Um, uh, are you going to continue with novels, or are you going to venture into um, non-fiction? What's the road ahead? Um, at the moment, I do have another another manuscript. Let's call it not a novel um, with my agent. She's busy assessing that. Um, and then I think I might just take a break from novel writing. Um, I'm busy with a collaborative project with a, with a fellow also that I can't really talk about at the moment. And then I'm dabbling with things like screenplays, you know, just trying different, completely different ways of expressing fiction. Oh, how Mostly ex- for my own, for my own amusement. Well, I should think so. You deserve fun and and enjoying what you're writing. Um, so I've come to the end of interviewing Mark Winkler, noted South African author who sells overseas as well, principally, I think, in Britain and France. This book, uh, Due South of uh, Copenhagen, is published by PRH, which is Penguin Random House. And depending on where you buy it, it'll cost you about 280 rands. It's out in print. And, you know, you can walk into a bookstore now and buy this book with an intriguing cover. And, Mark, I wish you all the best with this new venture that you're going to be, you know, you're, you're expanding in terms of your writing, plays, uh, nonfiction, etc. And lovely to meet you, even though it's only on the phone. I wish you all the best. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much, Sue. Hi there. So it's Sue Grant Marshall, Reading Matters, Radio Today, 1485 AM. And I'm going to try and talk about two books in the remaining very short time I have left to me and hopefully also get to exclusive books promotional campaign called Homebrew which is about the books South African authors have written and they are going to promote those in a special 
promotion that they have. So first of all, I'm going to talk about Angela McCallwa, her fourth book and her latest. You know, Angela's the one who has written, she had a success from the word go with the Blessed Girls. Then she had Red Ink, The 30th Candle, The Black Widow Society. Oh, I love that. So funny. And here, due out in about November, is The Blessed Girl. And fascinatingly, it has been published in the UK, United Kingdom, by Bloomsbury, which has enabled it to be a um, contender for the award-winning... CWIP, which is Comedy Women in Print. That was the brainchild of award-winning comedian Helen Lederer. And some of the other people who are in line for this award include Jeanette Winterson's Frankistine, which is <clears throat> hilarious, and uh, let me see any others who you may uh, remember. Uh, Reasons to be Cheerful by Nina Stibby. But the most important, of course, <laughs> for us is Angela McCallwa with her The Blessed Girl. The judges for this award, ooh, wouldn't it be absolutely fantastic if Angela McCallwa won it, are Marion Keyes, who, of course, we all know is that outstanding author who had hoped to come to the Franchuk Literary Festival this year and, unfortunately, due to Due to COVID, she couldn't make it. So here we are with Angela McCallwa um, saying in this information that has been sent to me, I'm honoured to have been shortlisted among such brilliant female comic writers. It's affirming to finally see women's writing being acknowledged for its diversity instead of having our writing being classified according to our gender. I hope this prize heralds a new era where we will see terms like chick lit being replaced by more nuanced categorizations of our work. So I hope to get that book in the not-too-distant future. As I said, November is its release here in South Africa. But, uh, well, if you could fly, you could nip over to the UK and get it. <laughs> it's published there by Bloomsbury. And here it'll be published by Pan Macmillan. And I'm sure you can get it on all the various ebook um, platforms Amazon, Take a Lot, etc., etc. So hats off to Angela McCallwa for being shortlisted for that prize. Now I'm going to chat about a book, very serious one The Rise or Fall of South Africa. And it is by Franz Cronier, who is the CEO of the International IRR International Relations. Oh, now what's the full title? Oh, the Institute of Race Relations. And he, Franz Cronier, is the CEO. This isn't his um, first book. I think it's his fourth or fifth. Um, it sets out South Africa's future and how it's likely to unfold because the Institute has been around since 1929. So it has a, it's an Institute, it's venerable Institute. 
and the IRR has urged South Africans to rip the scales off their eyes and rack, act rationally <laughs> since 1929. So that's quite a background of history and what has and hasn't happened in South Africa that Franz Cronier has been able to tap into. And... Um, it says uh, here in this information I have been sent, although I think the book might be out there already, um, it says that, and this is um, on the cover, it says, it's a shout from Rion Milan, and he says, gripping. Get this book. Um, now, let me just see what else he says here. Gripping. Get this book. And he goes on to write in the book, in the foreword, that um, most South Africans want good schools and hospitals, and above all, they want jobs. Cronier reminds us that there was a time when the ruling party seemed to hear these plaints and tried to address them. This was the time of gear. Do you remember that? G-E-A-R, the centrist economic strategy adopted by the ANC in 1996 at the urging of Thabo Mbeki. In the gear era, budgets were balanced and the national debt was halved. Foreign investment poured in. The economy grew at 5% a year, spawning millions of jobs and creating a happiness explosion, writes Rion Milan, of a sort never before seen in South Africa. And he goes on to say, Cronier's description of this golden moment will break your heart and cause you to rend your garments and wail. So why can't we go back there? Well, we might, says Rion Milan, but the odds against that now are very great. When Cyril Ramaphosa became president in 2018, the chattering class fell to its knees and ha hailed him as a saviour. Well, it wasn't just the chattering class, Rion Milan. It was also the Economist, which I don't think you could. They had Cyril Ramaphosa on its cover. So I don't think you could describe the economists as chattering class. But anyhow, Ramaphosa was the sort of man, writes Rion, who understood that the country was hurtling towards disaster. <clears throat> he was the sort of man who would pull the ripcord, causing the parachute of hope to blossom over our heads and carry us to safety. Ooh, I love the way Rion Milan writes. Alone... Amongst public intellectuals, almost alone, Cronier understood that the chattering class was fooling itself. Even if Ramaphosa was seriously intent on reform, his endeavours would be blocked by the twin dogmas. So what are those? Well, dogma one is racial nationalism. It maintains that the highest good in South African society is the achievement of racial transformation targets. Our state-owned enterprises may all be dying, you know, SOEs, but that doesn't matter very much, according to Rion Milan, who, you know, his book, My Traitor's Heart, 
was an international hit way back in the day, and he continues to write brilliantly for all sorts of mainly international magazines like Rolling Stone and The Spectator, etc., etc. So anyone, anyway, he goes on to say that racial nationalization is, um, it is the achievement um, of racial transformation targets. Our state-owned enterprises may all be dying, but that doesn't matter very much because they've achieved a state of immaculate transformation. (laughs) Dogma two is the doctrine of national democratic revolution. The Marxist-Leninist thesis inherited from where but the Soviet Union, where private property was regarded as theft and the state owned everything. For those who believed in national democratic revolution, state ownership and control of the economy is a state of grace. Anything else is anathema, which makes it almost impossible to solve South Africa's problems. On their own, neither, neither of these dogmas would be fatal. They could be resisted and challenged and argued, argued against in time, writes Rion Milan, possibly overturned. In combination, they are deadly, extinguishing all hope for everyone save the vampiric elite that inhabits the upper reaches of South African society. Cronier eloquently makes the case that even the ANC is consumed by fear because it knows we're heading for deep trouble, but the twin dogmas hold the party's critical faculties in a headlock and it cannot imagine abandoning either. So here we are then hurtling towards the ground at terminal velocity. What comes next will not be pleasant. Cronier writes, Rion Milan is a good-natured man. He tries to soften the blows and sweeten the bitter pills, but in the end, the striking line... The most striking line in his book is this one. Now, this is Cronier. I have sat through too many panels and wealth seminars, investor conferences, briefings and media interviews, where some of the speakers have frankly lied to the people who had come to hear them. One day, years from now, you may see me in the street, writes Franz Cronier, and when that happens, I don't want you to say... You knew, your people knew, but you never said dot, dot, dot. And that's the end of what he says. Uh, Rion writes that Cronier goes on to write that South Africa could pull out of its present dive and start growing strongly again at the end of this decade. But the intervening years are likely to be tough and the risks are daunting. It is late in the day, Cronier concludes. And now, more apparent than ever, that those who told you there was nothing to fear, and now it is more apparent than ever, that those who told you there was nothing to fear have been wrong all along. So there you go. This is The Rise and Fall of South Africa. It'll cost you a soft cover, 290, if you're buying it in print, and it's published by... Um, who's it published by? Let me look. Let me look here. NBN.
books, Tafelberg. So there you go. I think we should all rush out and buy that book and prevent the dismal scenario of us falling without a ripcord being pulled. So lastly, I'm going to talk quickly and I'll mention more titles next week. It's exclusive books celebrating South African writers and their books in their own words. So Homebrew is one of exclusive books' biggest promotional campaigns for the year. And the books chosen this year range from cookery, biography, fiction, current affairs, inspirational books and children's books. There are over 60 titles on the Home Brew selection. And this campaign is planned to run over five weeks from the 22nd of June, so that's this week, to the end of July. Right. Now... While we know that all promote, you know, having a launch, an actual launch of books, we can't do because we're not allowed to gather yet. Well, at least I think that is the case. But I'm going to, um, you know, I never know if I'm going to be overtaken by events when I record this program in this COVID-19 era. So one of the books is The Upside of Down by none other than Bruce Whitfield. The subtitle is How Chaos and Uncertainty Breed Opportunity in South Africa. That's published by Pan Macmillan, and you can get that. That's out in the bookstores now. Bruce Whitfield, as you know, is on 702 and does their business show, and he's also on ENCA, the famous Bruce Whitfield. Then, Sindiwi Mahona. Oh, I just love her. She has written a book called Theatre Road, My Story by Tembi Mchali Jones. And that's published by Protea Bookhouse. Then lastly, before I run out of time, do rush out and get Gail Schimmel's latest novel, Two Months. And that, too, is published by Pan Macmillan. Well, that's it for today. I will give you more titles from Homebrew next week. It's exciting. It's South African. And I just love our South African authors. So I will catch you again next week with more exciting book news. Cheers.